So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the book of the Acts, starting in the second chapter, reading verses 41 and 42. So those who received his word were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And may the Lord bless that reading of his word to our understanding. Just one footnote in my copy of the ESV, it says, just fellowship. It actually should be the fellowship. There's a definite article there, which I will tell you about in a moment. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we delve into this central concept that you established and you left us with of this idea of the fellowship. Well, Lord, we just pray your blessing upon our understanding, on our unity, on the bond that holds us together, and especially of our love and understanding of the one who is that bond, your son, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified in our thoughts and in the words that I say in Jesus' name, amen. First of all, before I get started, I want to thank our two elders, William Aviles and Freddie Montilla, for an absolutely wonderful uh, message that they brought last week. Don't you think so? I mean, I was blessed. You know, one thing that was very evident to us is watching that from afar is now, granted, we heard from great intellectual prophetic uh, uh, people like Mike Tyson But we also, the one thing that we really came away with was their command of Scripture. Scripture was laced all through everything they said. There's no way you could have watched that service and said, not come away saying, boy, those guys know their Scripture. Not just the ones that they read, but the ones that they laced in their discussions. So I was blessed, and I commend you both for a wonderful job that you did. But actually, I want to build on something that Brother Will brought out in his passage. Um, He looked at Numbers 8, the fourth verse. And in that verse, um, Moses is very briefly explaining how the golden lampstand that was used in worship in the tabernacle was built. We know that lampstand as the menorah. And I, I want you to form an image in your mind this morning that begins and kind of stays in the background throughout our entire Um, discussion. So let me just spend a few minutes to develop this. It's the image that I want you to see. Let me read to you first from a little bit more expansive discussion of this from the book of Exodus. I'm feeling cooler, so that's good news. Um, From the 25th chapter of Exodus, this is what we read. God speaking to Moses, you shall make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be made of hammered work. Its base, its stem, its cups, its calyxes, and its flowers shall be of one piece with it. That's important. And it goes on. And there will be six branches going out of the sides, three branches on one side and three branches on the other. The whole of it is a single piece of hammered work of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and the lamp shall be set up so as to give light on the space in front of it. 
And so you know what the menorah looks like. It's, it's seven lampstands on seven, there's a central trunk and then six uh, different branches that go out of it, all built to look sort of like flowers. And then there are seven lamps that the priest would always keep lit. Now, both Exodus and later in Numbers, it, it makes it clear that they was designed for the light to project forward. So if you walked into the tabernacle on your left, about halfway down would be the menorah. That is a light that was, was lit constantly by the priest, representing the presence of God, representing his spirit, representing life itself. Well, the light then is going to shine across the room, and sitting on the other side of the room is what was known as the showbread table, 12 loaves of freshly baked bread each week where that represented God's sustenance and provision for his people. Now, what is so significant, and I'm not going to go any deeper into the tabernacle and the temples that followed, but what is so significant about that is that all of those are not just symbols of God's presence and his provision, they're also types of of what Jesus Christ filled when he came. Because after all, if you remember John said in his prologue, in him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, that's the symbolic menorah shining in the darkness. And we also heard Jesus himself say, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Later on, he tells that I, I, I am the bread of life. And so each and every part of the temple was fulfilled in Jesus. But the temple itself was also fulfilled in Jesus. You may remember from John 2 when the, uh, the, the Jews were asking Jesus, hey, wait a minute, you know, give us a sign. And he says, the only sign I'm going to give you is that uh, uh, I'll tear this temple down and rebuild it in three days. And he said, wait a minute, it took 46 years to build this temple. And Jesus was talking about the temple of his body. And so here's my point. My point is that the Old Testament furniture, the menorah in the, uh, the tabernacle and the temples, was representative of the light of the world, the light of God, and life itself, God's presence in the very midst of his people. Now you have that, that's Old Testament. Now let's switch to the New Testament because there's a different uh, image, and most of you know this, but you also know it's one of my favorite images in all of Scripture. And it comes out of the first chapter of Revelation. When John just begins to see his vision on the island of Patmos, this is what we read. He says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe with a golden sash around his chest. He goes on to explain him in very divine uh, terms, talking about Jesus. I'm the one who died and now I'm alive. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. So in other words, we have a different image. And I want you to go back and think about the menorah. At the time when there was one place on earth where the people of God gathered to worship God, which was in the tabernacle or on Mount Zion, Mount Moriah in Jerusalem in the temple. And that's the reason we had a menorah with seven lamps and all of them coming to a central stalk. There was one place that God was going to be found and his worshipers were there in that place to worship him. Well, now in the New Testament, it's a totally different situation. There's not just one place 
place to be worshipped. He's going to go into the first three chapters of Revelation and talk about the seven churches of Revelation. Well, those are the seven lampstands now that Jesus stands in the middle of. Now, here's my whole point, okay, in bringing this imagery out to you. I want you to see what holds the church together in the New Testament context. In the Old Testament, it's the menorah, one place in the temple where sacrifices occurred and where God came to be with his people. In the New Testament, what is it that holds the churches together? It's Jesus. And that's the picture that we have. That is the core message for this morning. That when you talk about the unity of the church, when you talk about the fellowship, when you talk about the brotherhood, the sisterhood, who we are in the ecclesia, you cannot have any other glue or bond that holds us together except Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. He is the central one. He is the one in whom we live and breathe and have our existence as a church. Jesus is the bond that holds us together. Now, just keep that image in the back of your mind as we start talking about what that means in the, in the terms of a fellowship a little bit later on. Now, let me sort of back up a little bit and remind you of where we are the Sunday before we left. I, I, I sort of took a break. We're in the middle of Luke. We, we've studied two out of three of the temptations. But then we had that Sunday where we brought all these new members into the church, where we, we voted on the elders in a congregational meeting and the deacon as well, the officers of the church, and, and we took communion. And I just couldn't see talking about the devil during that particular service. So I switched to talk about the church here as it is given to us in the end of chapter 2 of Acts. Now, my intentions, of course, were to cover all four of these attributes that we get in in verse 42, all four of the marks of the apostolic church, which really is a model to us. I was going to cover all four of them on that day. Of course, you know that didn't happen. Uh, My messages tend to grow as I look at them. And so we only looked at the first one, which was the devotion to the, um, the apostles' teaching. So my intention then was to finish the other three this week, but again, it kind of took off. So we're only going to look at the second one this week, which is the fellowship. And then probably not going to finish it until the next time we have communion um, in, in October. We'll switch back to Luke next week. But with that said, let me just remind you what we learned about these marks of the apostolic church. First of all, going back to that 41st verse, one of the first points that I made was that 3,000 people were added to the church on that day. There was 120 to start with. So basically at the end of Pentecost, we have 3,120 souls who are in the Jerusalem church. And we ask the question, how many of those souls are absolutely redeemed, are completely reborn, are simply regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Well, the answer was 3,120. Because the Holy Spirit does not regenerate people part way. Now, it doesn't mean they're all on the same sanctification course. But what it means is that we had a window on the pristine germinal apostolic church. Very similar to the way that we are given that window in Genesis 1 and 2 of the way marriage was intended to be, in a sense, the bride of the first Adam. Well, in the same sense, in chapters 2, 3, and 4 of Acts, 
we have a look at the bride of the second Adam, the church or the fellowship. Before corruption sets in, before Jezebel sneaks in the back door, before Balaam starts to spout his false prophecies, before the enemy comes and sows the weeds in the midst of the wheat, we have this pristine little window on the church the way it was intended to be before persecution and corruption set in. And so that's the reason we were taking a look at this and I was saying, hey, we need to ask ourselves a question. How far have we fallen from that standard? I even gave you a little questionnaire and I need to apologize to the few of you who might actually have brought that back and filled it out. If you did fill it out, please put it in the... In the um, um, the offering um, uh, receptacles back there in the back as you leave. I'd be interested to know what you said, but I'm going to take a different track this morning. I, I don't want to chide you. I really don't want to talk about how far we've fallen from this. I, I, I want to tell you that what we're going to talk about this morning is good for you. It, it is the best practice. It is something that God has instilled so that we would be better Christians, more like Christ, and more spiritually healthy because he's given us this fellowship that we're going to talk about. We, we did talk last week a little bit, well, not a little bit, we talked all the time about what the, uh, the first attribute, which, of course, was that they were um, devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. We talked about what that teaching was. It literally was synonymous with the Bible because it was not only the New Testament, not only the gospel, it was also, of course, the New Testament wasn't written then. It was the witness of Christ, but it was also the Old Testament and all we had to do was look at Peter's Pentecost sermon to see that. But here's one distinction I want you to kind of recognize. Uh, when, when, when we, my focus last week was to determine how far, or not last week, last time I was here, how far we've fallen from that standard, sort of, again, sort of chiding the church as far as not being as much into the word as we should be. Um, I don't want to go that route um, this, this, this morning. And you're going to find it confusing a little bit because what I said last week is true. I, I, I'm going to say that every time so you basically get used to it. I know I wasn't here last week, but it's just what comes out. Um, but anyway, last time I was here, I, I, what I said was true. Doctrine divides. And in a certain sense, it should divide. When error and heresy enter the church, the orthodox solid doctrine, which is synonymous with the teaching of the apostles in Scripture, it is scriptural doctrine. When doctrine divides the church, sometimes it needs to. But this morning, I'm going to talk about unity and brotherhood and being one body. And you're going to say, wait a minute, which is it? Are we dividing or are we unified? Well, I think it's a good question. And I want you to remember the makeup of that original fellowship. 3,120 souls that were completely on the same page. We're talking about the, what's known as the invisible church there. We're talking about the weeds, even though they, they, they're in the midst of the wheat. We're talking about the wheat itself. These are the ones who must be unified. It's what Christ called us to be. And so, therefore, that's where we are. And we are going to actually look this morning at a single word, fellowship. And you're going to say to yourselves, great, we'll be out of here in a hurry. You know better than that. 
And I hope you know better than that, this is a big word. Actually, the underlying word is one of those Greek words that is worth you learning and remembering. It's the word koinonia, koinonia. Um, and, and it is, you'll find it through, throughout scripture. It's far more than just a fellowship. You see, it's a word that actually means to share with each other. And a fellowship is a group of people who like each other and have like interests and enjoy being in each other's company, gathering together for social activities. Well, that's not the koinonia. And that's not even peculiar to Christians. So we really need to flesh this word out. We need to see it in a deeper sense, what the koinonia actually means. The koinonia speaks of a fellowship that is intricately and intimately involved with each other. They're part of each other's lives. They're woven together in a fabric. This is what Jesus prayed to his father for in his high priestly prayer, which we will quote quite a few times. Jesus put it this way, if I can find it. He said... um, Praying to his father, he says that they may all be one, just as you, father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He's talking about a bond. He's talking about a unity. He's talking about a togetherness that transcends the idea of a group of people getting together to share a social event. He is talking about something that reflects the bond that is between the Father, Son, and Spirit of the Trinity, of of being in Christ and having Christ in us. It's an amazing concept when you start talking about what the koinonia actually is. Now, there's one other thing, and I mentioned it as I read it, that I want you to see just from a grammatical point of view, and that is it's not fellowship, or it's not a fellowship, it is the fellowship, the, 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 the article there, the definite article. And, and what that does is it sets it apart as an identifiable entity in and of itself. These are Jews, but they are Jews who are worshiping Jesus, and because they are the fellowship, they are set apart from the world around them, from the other Jews, and they were noticeable to the people around them, and we will get to that in a moment. Now, what I want to do, and I want to thank one of my great scholars that I read, and you know, I quote him often, William Hendrickson. Um, I, I want to thank him because he sort of mapped out some of these thoughts that I'm following. Um, it, not, not in his commentary on Luke, but in his commentary on Philippians. And Brother Will read you some of that passage from Philippians. Let me read it to you out of the New American Standard translation because Paul puts it this way. Talking, first of all, just kind of leading us into the humility of Christ and saying we need to all be of the same mind. But he says this, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship 
of the, of the Spirit. That's the word, koinonia. If there is any koinonia of the Spirit, um, uh, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. So, brothers and sisters, it is evident that the koinonia is not an everyday fellowship. It goes far greater. So what we're going to do is we're going to, it's not an exhaustive list, but we're going to look at some of the distinguishing attributes of the koinonia, especially at this time with a pristine church. But don't ever forget, we are still the koinonia, this gathering right here. We are the koinonia. We are the fellowship that is being talked about here 2,000 years later. Well, the first thing that we want to remember, and this is probably one of the most important things about the koinonia, and that is that the koinonia is a fellowship that is divinely established. This is not our fellowship. We didn't create it. We didn't decide we were going to have a club one day and that we were all going to get together and have these times where we talk about the things we all agree upon. It is not a man-made fellowship by any means whatsoever. This is ordained and built and established and sustained by God. Paul puts it beautifully to the Ephesians when he says, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling for God by the Spirit. That's us he's talking about. We are one and built together in the household of God. Peter beautifully handles this also in his first epistle when he says, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Paul said to the Corinthians, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. Hebrews puts it this way, we are his house. So brothers and sisters, the trouble begins when we start thinking this is our fellowship. That we did it, we made it. It's a human organization. And so therefore, we are going to take the bull by the horns and we are going to step out in our own power and strength and we are going to make this koinonia, this fellowship, what we want it to be. It's not ours. We didn't create it. We didn't make it. This is Christ's church, Christ's fellowship. We are His. And it is held together by him. He's the preeminent one. It is in him that we will find our unity. If we step outside of him, we are lost. Like so many other churches already have done. So the first thing I want to point out about this koinonia is that the koinonia is a fellowship that is divinely established. Secondly, it is a fellowship of redeemed sinners, folks. It is the fellowship that is entirely by grace. We are here, the whole thing about this fellowship, it really makes this a completely different fellowship. There's not a single person who's a member of this fellowship who deserves to be a member. (laughs) 
It's all by grace. It's, It's the gift of God that he gives us the calling in a sense. It is a membership and a fellowship by invitation because it is God's elect that he chooses and he brings out of darkness and brings into his marvelous light. But notice the impact that this has on the koinonia. It means that the playing field is leveled. There's no hierarchy here. There's no one better or worse. There is Jesus and then there is everyone else in one flat stream. Paul puts it this way to the Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's the one who holds this fellowship together. We're all here by grace, folks. None of you deserve to be here. None of you earned this by merit. None of you accomplished this on your own. We are here because of the grace of the Almighty God. And we need to remember that. Boy, that puts a different perspective on the fellowship, doesn't it? Well, the third thing that I want to bring out about the fellowship is that the koinonia is a fellowship of faith. By definition, it is a fellowship of believers, believers in Jesus Christ. And, and, and that defines us. It, again, we are here because of grace and because of the faith that God has given us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works so that no one can boast. We are here because we believe. That's what we have in common. We believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. And that belief, brothers and sisters, is totally dependent upon him. Remember what Hebrews says? That he is the founder and perfecter of our faith. But this is not a stagnant faith. This is not a docile faith. Faith. It's not an indolent, it's not a dead faith. It is alive and it is dynamic and therefore it must manifest itself in tangible ways according to James. If we have the faith, it is going to be, there's going to be an outworking of that faith. So we need to look for that in the fellowship. Because we are saved by grace, because we are saved by faith, Because none of us deserves to be here. (laughs) Of all the fellowships on earth, this is a fellowship. The koinonia is a fellowship of, how shall I put this, thanksgivers. Okay? We are, if there's any group of people on the face of the planet who should be thankful, it is us. Because God has pulled us out of the sewer. He has taken us out of the darkness and brought us into his marvelous light. He has clothed us in his own righteousness, forgiven our sins, and he's prepared a place for us in heaven for an eternity where we will stand in the, pro- in the presence of an almighty holy God. You think maybe you have something to be thankful for. So the koinonia is a fellowship of people who gather together to praise and worship and glorify and thank their God. Here's the way Paul put it to the Colossians. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The koinonia is a fellowship of truly humble, thankful people. Koinonia is also 
a fellowship of love. In fact, it's a fellowship of lovers. It is a fellowship of people who are in love with each other. You know what Jesus said. He said, I give you a new commandment. that you love one another. And this is the way they will know that you're my disciples. Is by the way you love one another. Do you know that was a real problem in this early koinonia? You know, they, they went into Greek and Roman society. And the first thing they accused them of was incest. Because they were all walking around calling each, brothers, each other brothers and sisters. Hugging each other and giving each other holy kisses. And they say, they're a bunch of incestual people. And secondly, they were so deeply and completely committed to each other and so in love with each other that they made up all kinds of of egregious, sinful acts that they accused them of doing in, in their private meetings. Just because they truly and completely loved each other. But you know something? We love each other or we should love each other. The church doesn't mean you have to like each other, by the way. It means that we love each other completely and totally in Christ. That's how we do it. I want to read to you, many of you know this, one of the most extraordinary verses, at least when you really sit down and meditate on this, that we have, the the 17th chapter of John is just off the charts as far as Jesus telling us. But this, this is what he prays to his father. He says that um, I have... I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Do you realize what he just said? He said that the fellowship, the koinonia, the people who are called according to Christ's name are going to have the love that is representative, reflective of the white hot a divine love that exists between the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want them to love each other the way we love each other, is what Jesus is saying. Oh my goodness. I have to say this, how far we have fallen. But that's the reason when you, when you look at this early church and you, do, you see them doing some things that you just can't, can't quite quantify, like selling all their, their belongings and giving it to each other. It's because their love for each other was so great that it transcended all of their stuff. And that's the next attribute of this koinonia. The koinonia is a fellowship of mutual care. It's a, it's a fellowship of brothers and sisters that put more emphasis on their love for each other than they do on the this is mine and that is yours. And, and that's why we said, and I'm not going to go into it any deeper. That's why we see in the book of Acts, we see them doing those extraordinary things. That they're going out and selling everything that they have, all their property, and they're bringing the money and putting it at the apostles' feet. In essence, what they are doing is eliminating poverty within their midst. This from the fourth chapter, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was, uh, what, what was sold. Now, don't get me wrong and, and don't misread this. <laughs> there, this is not a justification of socialism or communism. There is no mandate, no forced giving, even within the Christian church. This is 100% voluntary. There's no government involved and the apostles were not 
even requiring that people did this. People were doing it automatically themselves because their brothers and sisters were in need. And how can I possibly allow my brother or sister to be in need, whether they are here in this body or whether they are across the ocean in the island of Haiti? How can my brothers and sisters be in need when I have so much? That's the way that the love manifested itself. It manifested itself in this mutual concern and and care for each other. But there's one thing that's hugely important that I want to bring out now, that the koinonia is a a fellowship that is distinctly identifiable. If you remember, um, I pointed out with the grammar that the koinonia wasn't just a koinonia, a fellowship or a fellowship. It was the fellowship, definitively defining it as a, as a separate unit, something that was set apart in and of itself, where you could look at this group of people and you could say, that's the fellowship. Now, all these guys over here, they're fellowshipping, but that's the fellowship. And brothers and sisters, that runs against the grain of what we see around us today in modern Christendom. Because there's this idea in modern Christendom that the closer we get to the sewer, the, the more we look like the, the wretchedness of this world, the less intimidated people will be and the more likely they are to come into our fellowship. Well, that's exactly opposite of what this particular fellowship was. The coin and eel was a light. It was a beacon. It was different than the society that was around it. Remember what Jesus prayed to his father once again, going back to the high priestly prayer? He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And we talked about this when we studied John. Here, Jesus comes from heaven into the sewer. And he reaches down into the muck of the sewer and he pulls out his bride. And he purifies her and he cleanses her and he forgives her sins. And wraps her in his righteousness, sets her up and then leaves her in the sewer. And he goes back to heaven. Now we'll talk about the reason he did that in a moment. Because this is a bride with a mission and a purpose. But she is to be of the world. I'm sorry. She is to be in the world, but not of the world. She is in the sewer, but she is not of the sewer. She is distinctly different. A whole process begins of sanctification, Jesus would say to his father. A couple of verses later, sanctify them in the truth because your word is truth. Setting them apart so that they are not of this world. They are identifiable. Peter beautifully puts it in his second chapter of his first um, epistle when he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That's God's own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are the city on the hill, brothers and sisters. You are the brotherhood. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. Do not put that light under a barrel. You have no business putting it under something where it cannot be seen. Shine it out into the darkness to lead those who are coming out of darkness into the safe harbor like a lighthouse. You're the light of the world, 
just like Jesus was the light of the world. Now, we don't have time to read through these chapters in Acts, but if you did, you would notice that during this pristine moment between the second and fourth chapters, or second and fifth chapters, they were well thought of by uh, the people. I mean, we read back in the second chapter, and awe came upon every soul. That's every soul in Jerusalem. And they're watching the miracles that the apostles are working, and they're seeing all of the great works and mighty deeds that the church is doing in amongst the, the, the people, how they're model citizens and how much they love each other, and they're in awe of that. In the fourth chapter, we read, For all were praising God for what had happened So we are that city on a hill, brothers and sisters, set apart, not one with the world, but an identifiable fellowship. That's the koinonia. Well, it's also a fellowship with a mission, as I said earlier. Uh, (laughs) The reason our Lord left us in the sewer, folks, is not because he forgot us. It's because there's other people who are in the sewer that are still under the power of Satan, lost in their sins, who don't know that they are God's chosen and we are given the task of going out, searching and rescuing for those people and bringing them into the light of Christ by sharing the gospel with them. I mean, you know this. You know that the koinonia, the church, the fellowship has a mission. You know that we are not just to be indolent and lazy and totally self-focused. Now, there's an awful lot of self-focus with this fellowship, but we are also outwardly focused. I mean, after all, you remember the things that Jesus said, go therefore into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always. I'm sorry, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the very end of the world. That's our commission, brothers and sisters. Jesus said the same things to his apostles in the book of John after he was raised from the grave. He looked at them and said, as the Father has sent me, so now I send you. Jesus, the first apostle sent one from heaven, comes and gives that commission to his disciples, the new apostles with a capital A. I'm sending you because I have been sent with this purpose. We are not apostles, nor will we ever be, but we are apostlers. We are sent ones. We have been sent out into the world to share the gospel with a dying culture that desperately needs to hear it. We have a mission. We have a purpose. Also, we can look to the beginning of Acts, the very first chapter. You remember what Jesus said, virtually the last things he said before he went back up to heaven. He says, you are my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. Brothers and sisters, this is what the koinonia does. We are a fellowship with a task. And you're either involved with one way or another. You're either a goer or a sender. You know, I don't have time to go into it, but there's two parts of that. Some of you are goers and some of you are senders. And so therefore, we're either involved with it or we're not. But if we're not involved with the the Great Commission, then I'm not sure we're part of the fellowship either because this is a fellowship with a mission. Finally and lastly, the koinonia is a fellowship. And this is not exhaustive. I'm just... These are just some 
of what the koinonia is. The koinonia is a fellowship because of everything I just discussed, because of all the points that I just gave you. We're a fellowship at war. We're a fellowship with an enemy. An enemy that has in his mind nothing more than the desire to destroy the koinonia, to destroy the fellowship, to destroy the church. I can think of no better place to find this than in the book of Revelation where in that great 12th chapter that I keep taking you back to where there's this battle in heaven and Satan is defeated and cast down. This is what we read. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea. For the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, brothers and sisters, that radiant woman is us. That's the koinonia. And that's our enemy. Coming after us, trying to destroy us, trying to to flood us with a flood of lies, Jezebel in the back door, Balaam spouting his false doctrines, weeds among the wheat. That's our enemy. Probably no better place to look at the idea of the enemy than once again in Revelation 6. Those of you who were part of that study know this is one, another one of my favorites. I love Revelation. But those four apocalyptic horsemen. Now, I'm different than many people. I think that the first one is not Christ, but a Christ lookalike. It's not necessary that he is for this analogy to work. But the gospel goes forth. And those four apocalyptic horsemen come right after it. I mean, John told us 2,000 years ago what it was going to be like. First of all, he's going to come and try to confuse and befuddle the gospel, to twist it and turn it around, to, to make it so confusing that we don't know which way is up or what is good doctrine and bad doctrine. And then right behind it comes the red horse of war, both spiritual and physical, with a, an intention of destroying the church. If you don't think war destroys the church, just look at the Lutheran church in World War II and what happened to it. And then comes famine and need and want. And finally, pestilence and, and death and Hades. Whatever it takes, we brothers and sisters are a fellowship at war. Now, with those ideas of this fellowship, and I hope that's a little bit more expansive than you came in here thinking the word fellowship meant. But two questions come to mind. First one, we're not going to spend a lot of time on because I think I've already answered it. But the second one, we need to discuss. And, and the first one is, was the koinonia essential for the early church? For this window that we have on this group of people, was the koinonia, the fellowship, absolutely essential to them? And secondly, is it still essential for us today? Is the fellowship an essential part of what it means to be a Christian? Well, the first answer is obviously yes. That particular church in those days was persecuted in ways that we can only read about. We don't live in that world, brothers and sisters. There are people in this world who do live there, but we don't. They needed 
a fellowship, the cohesiveness, the strength. They needed to stay on track. They needed the sacraments. They needed worship. They needed to be together in the strength that comes through being in the presence of Christ and being in the presence of the lampstand. So yes, it was absolutely essential to that early church, but the question I want to ask now, is it essential to us? 2,000 years later, after all, we have 2,000 years of scholarship, don't we? We have commentaries and TV shows and and YouTube and, and we have so many different ways that we can plug in, that we can talk. Do we really need each other? I was talking just the other day with a rather arrogant person who said, I don't need a church. I'm a, I'm a rock. I'm, a, I'm an oak. I stand alone. God has told me that I don't need anyone. I just need me and Jesus. Well, funny that God would contradict himself that way because that's not what he says here. That's not the koinonia. God in his wisdom set up the koinonia. He set up a fellowship for us to be together for reasons, for good reasons. I mean, just in general. Satan's a predator, folks. Our enemy is a predator. He knows. Peter says he's like a, like a roaring lion just walking around looking for someone to destroy or look to someone to devour. Well, I have some great video if you'd like to see the way lions hunt. They, they don't attack the whole herd. They isolate the young or the infirm. And once they get them alone, they attack that baby zebra or whatever it is. And they rip it to shreds. That's the way that Satan works. That's the way that he operates. And, and, and if you think that you can go it alone, that you don't need the fellowship in any way, you're like an ember taken out of the coals and put out by itself in the wind. Those tend to go out. Satan's just waiting to get you alone. Probably waited to get Eve alone. That's what he's doing to Jesus in the, in, in the desert. He's got him alone. And so he's going to try to drive a wedge between him and his father. He will try to drive a wedge between you and the church. And make you think that you don't really need the church. But you see. The fellowship is where the lampstand is. You can't see it but it's here. This is where the spirit of Christ comes to meet his people. Now, I'm not saying he's not there at home, you know, sitting on your couch. You should be worshiping all the time. But it is in corporate worship. That's where the lampstand is. That, that's, where, that's the way we were designed. That's the wisdom of God. Is so that we gather together. Now, brothers and sisters, if we don't gather together, which is what they have been doing since the Kahal, the assembly of the Jews stood before Mount Sinai in the first gathering of the church. Since that time, it has always been corporate worship. If we don't do it, who will? If we don't gather together as the body of Christ and glorify and worship and honor and praise and give thanksgiving to our Lord, who will? Because that's what the koinonia does. We praise the God of heaven and we worship him. So therefore, it's not only, I, you know, I, I don't always like to just respond this way, but, you know, another good reason is the fact that you're commanded to. Right? Hebrews 10, we all know how that goes. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, I'll talk a little bit about 
how things are changed now, and I understand that. But how, how are you going to stir me up to love and good works when you're not here? How, how are you going to stir others? Now, I might be able to stir you up to love and good works because I'm the one that the camera's on. But this is not written to me. This is written to you. It is written to the church to stir each other up for love and good works. Obviously, you've got to be here in the koinonia in order to do that. Now, I realize, trust me, I realize that we're in extraordinary circumstances. And I know that. I know that there are some of you, especially at home, that feel intensely the, the hollowness of not being in this fellowship. And you'd give anything if you could be, but you're frightened for whatever reason of this pandemic. And you feel that if you come, you might get sick. And I'm not going to address that. I understand that. But I don't think that includes everyone who's not here. And, of course, I'm going to offend people. I'm going to offend you, and I'm sorry. Well, actually, no, I'm not sorry. Um, Because I actually do feel that there are some people that are using the pandemic as an excuse to stay away. An excuse to get up in your pajamas and watch... Uh, you know, the service and, and say that that's actually worship. Um, it, it's not the koinonia. Um, it, it is good. I'd rather you do that than do nothing. But, you know, you do other things. You go to work every day amongst a lot of people. You should be careful because your Facebook pages, people show me, and there you are and a whole bunch of people without your mask on at a party and you hadn't been here in two years because you're afraid to be in the presence of other people. There's a word for that, and I know I'm going to offend you, but the word is hypocrite. So you need to think about whether you're part of the koinonia or not, whether you have a real desire to be part of the koinonia or not, because this is what God has put together. He has established it. This is the place that we gather to worship Him corporately. Give Him the glory. As I said, this is where the lampstand is. This is where the sacraments are served. This is where the means of grace. This is where the word is shared. This is where you will find fellowship. But you know, there, the, the problem is, is more than just that. And again, I'm, I'm not going to chide you. I'm not doing that this morning. But I do have to point this out. That even before the pandemic, there is a tendency, especially among young people, to say, I don't need church. I'll just do church at home. I'll do church on my phone or I'll do church on my, um, my iPad or my computer or my TV. And, you know, that's good enough. That's what I need. Well, let me, let, let me, let me try to explain something to you. Because even those who come to church regularly might not actually be part of the beneficial aspects of the koinonia. God established it this way because God is infinitely wise. And he knows what is best for you. And, and, and rather than chide you, I, I would rather this be kind of like when you go to a doctor or when someone goes to a doctor after 20 years of smoking three packs of cigarettes a day and you can barely breathe. And the doctor says, you need to stop smoking. Uh, duh, because it's killing you. Well, I'd like to be in the same sort of a vein this morning. I'd like to say that God has created for you a fellowship, a koinonia that is good for your health. And even though you may be going to church on Sunday morning, you may not be taking advantage of what God intended for his church to be. So let me give you an illustration. I know that many of you think I'm a kook. and That's okay. But you are what you eat. 
You are. I mean, I, that's not my opinion. That's the physiological fact. You are what you eat. You're, you're made up of flesh and bones, and that flesh and bone is replenished by what you put in your body. So I want you to imagine, just for this illustration's sake, that you have the world's worst eating habits. As far as you're concerned, a healthy meal is a Big Mac uh, drive through your, your idea of a diet is not to supersize it. You drink nothing but Cokes. You eat nothing but potato chips. Everything you eat is high in fat or it's in cholesterol. It's manufactured food. It's processed food. It is full of fertilizers. It is full of pesticides. It is full of hormones. Everything you eat is bad for you. And you do this every day of the week except Sunday morning. Sunday morning you wake up and you were just raised this way, so you do it. You get dressed, you take a shower, you get dressed, and you go to the health food restaurant. And once a week, for it takes about two and a half hours round trip, but once a week you eat a healthy breakfast. You have a smoothie with kale and spinach and fruit and vegetables and nuts and berries, and you just fill yourself with good things. And, and like I said, it takes a a while to get dressed and get over there and then you've got to wait for them to make it and then you've got to eat it and drink it and then you leave and you go home. About two and a half hours. And as soon as you get home, you sit down on the couch with a box of Intamin's donuts. You eat uh, half the box. You open up a bag of potato chips. You eat the entire bag. After that, you pop a couple of beers and smoke a few cigarettes, turn the TV on and that's where you spend the rest of the day. Now, now, after doing that for 20 or 30 years, you start to have health problems, and you go to the doctor, and the doctor looks at you, and you are an absolute mess. You're 50 pounds overweight, your arteries are clogged, you've got a high blood pressure, everything in the world is wrong with you, and the doctor says, you're a mess. And you say to the doctor, wait a minute, I religiously go to the health food store to eat breakfast. I mean, you should see the good stuff I eat. And so, so that must not work, okay? That whole health food craze must be ridiculous because it's not fixing what's wrong with me. I, I know that's a ludicrous example. I hope it's ludicrous. But it actually should be the other way around. In other words, you should be eating healthy all the time, you know, every day, morning, noon, and night. You should be eating stuff that is good for your body. And then if you do that, then maybe once in a while going through McDonald's is not going to kill you. Although it might. I, I, actually, I shouldn't say that. I, I'm, I'm not, uh, forgive me, McDonald's, I'm not talking about you. I'm just using you as an example of fast food. Okay, let me take that back. All right? I don't, don't write me letters. But if we put that in a spiritual sense, so many people are doing that every week. I, I mean, I watch you. You blow in two minutes before the service. You sit down and you go through the service. And, and you know, back when I used to walk down the aisles to go to the narthex to, to, to visit everybody, some of you are already not only out the door, you're halfway to your car before I can get from here to there. there there's, there there's no fellowship. There, there's no interaction. You don't stay for the after church, which is when we go deeper into the message of the day. You don't uh, come back for Sunday evening worship when we have it or watch online as we do our various Bible studies. You don't come on Wednesday. You don't engage in any of the small groups. You don't do any of the outreach or the things that we do. do. Now, granted, it's curtailed because of the pandemic, but we're ramping back up. But if you don't do any of those and yet you come for two and a half hours on Sunday morning and you wonder why you're not spiritually healthy. 
It's because God didn't plan us like that. It's not the way he made us. He made you and me to love each other, to be part of the same fellowship, to spend time together, to read the word together, to pray together, to work in the kingdom together, to do all of these things, to be intricately involved with each other's lives. Some of you barely see anything but your backside as you leave. Now, brothers and sisters, that's not the koinonia. Now, whether you're doing it that way, whether you're staying at home because you're afraid of, your, of health, or whether you're just being lazy, I can make one blanket statement. You can't paint this with a broad brush, but I can make one blanket statement. It's not the apostolic church. Because the apostolic church puts such a premium on gathering together as the koinonia that they were willing to risk their lives to do it. Sometimes their meetings would be broken up. They would be drug out into the street and beheaded right there or stoned right there. They could be sent into the Colosseum to be eaten by wild animals or lit up as Roman candles. They did this because they would not forsake corporate worship. It meant more to them than their own lives. Right now around the world, brothers and sisters, there are small pockets of Christians who are still like that. Northern Korea, some places in the Middle East, China, where they're meeting at the risk of their own lives. That's how important it is. And that's why we need it. That's why it's essential. One more question and I'll let you go. How do we get from here to there? How do we get from this fallen world with Jezebel running around all over the place, Balaam spouting more false doctrine than true, the weeds growing faster than the wheat, and every problem that can possibly exist in the church? How do we get from here to there? Do we need a book? Do we need a program? Do we need to sit down and start studying each other's behavioral problems and patterns? Do we need to begin to rub off all of the sharp edges around each other? Do we need to do away with color, do away with race, do away with ethnicity, do away with any kind of cultural differences? Do we want to do away with gender? And if we can make ourselves one solid homogenous group, then maybe we can get along together. Well, slowly the world tries to do it, and it doesn't work for them, and it's not going to work for the church. Let me give you a principle that's going to sound like it's backwards, but it's not. If we want unity, brothers and sisters, we should not pursue it. It's not that we don't want it to come. It's not our first pursuit, I guess I should say. If we want unity and that's what we set out to achieve, we will not achieve it. Because we have forgotten and bypassed and circumvented the only unifying factor that the church has. The menorah and the lampstands. If you want to be a unified church, brothers and sisters, pursue Christ. Follow Him. Take up your cross and give up your identity and pour yourself into Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the reason we love each other. It's the reason reason we are bound together. He is the glue that holds us together. The more you follow Christ, the more you're going to love me even though you can't stand to listen to me. The more you're going to love each other. Because you know why? When you're in Christ, 
Christ loves them. That person you have trouble loving, Christ loves them. Especially if they're brothers and sisters in Christ. You know Christ loves them. They may have hard personalities to deal with, but Christ loves them. If you're in Christ, you're going to love them too. That's where we need to be, brothers and sisters. If we want to be the apostolic church, that's what this whole thing is about. If we want to be the apostolic church, then don't pursue that. Pursue Christ. Because in Christ, we find our unity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have made all things straightforward and simple for us. We can't fix what's wrong between all of us, but we can love you and pursue you. And we know that the more we pursue you, the more we're going to love each other. That's what Paul says. He says that we become your body, and then we become members of each other, he says in Romans. That, that we are indeed the koinonia. And at the center of that, holding it together, is you. And help us to recognize that and never forget it. And individually and corporately to pursue you with abandon. It is in your name that we pray. Amen.